Dithwin me colangari distitho curing. Yalte qui bust be funte realanben, en hail quiriquateque. Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the road is William Annis. Hello. And over in Maine, we have Mike Lentine. Howdy. George, I'm waiting for the day when you can say that introduction so fast it's no longer recognizable as English. <laughs> <laughs> that was really fast. I have had a lot of practice with that intro, so it's just <laughs> sort of... I guess that that that's just sort of a a, a radio thing. Um, not that I'm in radio. I'm in a podcast that is it's modern uh, equivalent. Listened to for very few people, but by very few. People. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, it's interesting how like podcasters often talk about something being good radio or bad radio, things like that. Um, I think it's mainly because a lot of them, uh, a lot of the early podcasters actually came from radio backgrounds, so. And it's an obvious model for what podcasting is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's basically internet talk radio. Um, <laughs> with the, the added thing that it's, um, on demand. And we so. don't invite Jerry Springer on. <laughs> Uh, okay. A uh, couple of announcements that I want to get through. There was, there's been some conlanging news out there. And, uh, so, um, the New Yorker did an excellent, I think, profile on John Quijada, the creator of, uh, Iskuil, or however you're supposed to pronounce that, uh, which I think we ep- featured that language on episode Three or four? It was very early. Yeah, and it like Bianca wasn't there, and it was me and you just like stumbling through it, like, if I recall correctly. <laughs> More or less. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Me concluding that I am not smart enough to ever speak this language. Yeah. Huh. But uh, anyway, that it's, it tells sort of the story behind this cool stuff that I didn't really know about before, and all sorts of like. Apparently, um, some very strange people in, uh, in the, uh, former Soviet Union have taken it up for unusual things. And, uh, mm. I don't know. It's, it's, it, it, it's an interesting story. It's long, but I, I, I hope people will go and actually read the whole thing. Cause it's in the New Yorker. It's always long. It's, it's, it's very fascinating. And then, um, I have another thing. This kind of just sort of popped into my attention. Just sort of, uh, conlanging Twitter sphere started bubbling this up. Um, apparently, uh, so Jim Henry has cystic fibrosis and, uh, uh, we all know Jim Henry as the creator of Gazembun. Uh, we had him on the show. I don't remember which episode it was, but it was not too long ago. And, Basically, um, he's saying he'll probably, he's going to possibly need a lung transplant fairly soon. And I, 
I'm not sure on details on this because he's 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 very sort of short on it. But um, uh, it seems like he's having to, to he he thinks that he may have to sort of pay out of pocket and maybe he doesn't have uh, good insurance. But um, anyway, the long and short of it is there's a site you can donate to to him for uh, for his medical expenses and. Uh, speaking as, you know, the son of a heart transplant patient, you know, if my dad had not been able to trust, uh, be under my mom's really good insurance, uh, it probably would have ruined the family because, uh, uh, uh it probably wouldn't, would have ruined us because that stuff is really expensive. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, I'll have a link to that. Uh, if people want to donate. With all that done, we have a featured Nat Lang this week. And yeah. what is that Nat Lang? It is Cherokee. Um, so, um, uh, William, I think you were the, the one who suggested this originally. Um, tell us a little bit about, uh, Cherokee. I see it's, it's an Iroquoian language. Right. It, the the main reason it got on the list is because, by preference, I include or prefer to discuss languages for which we can give point people at free resources. Yes. Um, and a few years ago, there were no such resources for Cherokee. And even print resources were, frankly, not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the last few years, a number of great things have appeared, both in uh, print and now we have this enormous grammar available online and a website with lessons with, you know, nice PDFs and MP3 files has also appeared. So um, for people who are interested in the language, obviously most of this is directed at uh, Cherokee themselves who might not know their ancestral language, but it's all about there um, for looking at for people who are interested. Hmm. Um, it, in researching the show, I saw everything from 11,000 to 16,000 for the number of speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, so add by the standards of languages spoken in the United States. That's very good, but that's still pretty, that's on the edge. Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of small. Uh, it's still reasonably healthy, but very small. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell just giving numbers because one of the smaller languages in the United States, I think Havapai, only has, it has less than 200 speakers, but because all children learn the language from the start, the language is considered very healthy because everyone in the community who's born into the community learns the language, whereas that is not necessarily true of Cherokee or even Navajo, which is the biggest, and has, you know, 114,000 speakers. By percent, it's more endangered now than it was when there were fewer speakers just because fewer kids are learning it. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so there's all sorts of stuff now for people who are interested in learning it um, or learning about it. Um, As you said, it is an Iroquoian language. It, Like all of the Iroquoian languages, I think all of them, there is uh, this sort of standard vowel system with four or five or six vowels, and then there's a central vowel, which is the only one that's nasalized, and it only occurs nasalized. Yeah, that, that's uh, the romanized as a V, right? Yes, and it's typically romanized as a V in um, transcriptions of Cherokee in the normal romanization. Yeah, uh, that's a schwa, is it? Uh, I I think it's a little it's nasalized. I think. Well, it uh, is nasalized. Is it? it is at, yes, it is absolutely nasalized. I think it's a little fronter than a schwa, but 
there may be there are at least two distinct dialects um mm-hmm. and until the 1900s there were three um so there there may be some spread there if you look at the Wikipedia page, it shows a very small consonant inventory, but the grammar that we have, the big big monster, um, lists a somewhat larger one. Um, for yeah. it, it, it counts labialized as different from plain yeah. um, velars. It counts aspirated as different from unaspirated, which appears to be the correct way of doing things, so it's not quite as simple, probably, as the Wikipedia article makes it look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's um, something to... Uh to look at because you know sometimes sometimes different people can analyze things differently so yeah mm-hmm. uh, um it has a fairly complex pitch accent system yeah i saw that that was interesting yeah see now that's a something if i can find it the information on that and that central vowel by the way um is transcribed here as a schwa um in the yeah but i've also system. i've also seen it as a, a backwards epsilon yeah so it may be one of those things that's the things that's it's like in an in-between vowel that's not any of the standard ipa values or something sure um so but i do see nasalization here in other vowels so no you don't or is that something that's, is that marking something else? It says word final vowel, vowels are nasalized, but this is often not apparent as many of the final vowels are dropped in everyday speech. Hmm. Right. So that may be a bit of allophony, but in terms of phonemic distinction between nasal and non-nasal, it only has, it's, no, the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, I, I just saw it in the transcription and I was looking at, when I was looking at the uh, picture. So anyway, if I can find, okay, tones, um, this is something that I'm interested in figuring out more because I've heard that character key has a pitch accent system. I've also ha- heard that it has a full tonal system. So I'm not sure, um, which, which is true. I think this guy is looking more, this guy is leaning more towards the pitch accent. Yeah. In his transcriptions, one at most two syllables will have any tone marking. The rest of them are low. Uh-huh. So yeah. that to me means <laughs> a pitch accent system rather than necessarily tone. Mm-hmm. But, you know, phonologists can argue about this. It's, it doesn't matter to me terribly. Other than between long and short vowels, there are eight different possibilities of low, short, and rising and falling. They also have a low falling and a high falling. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which, I forget which it is, um, is practically constrained to adjectives, adverbs. One of them only occurs in very constrained grammatical environment, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. Um, but as George has already mentioned, this document is massive. So even though I have some page marks in my notes, it's hard to find things. <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> it's huge. This, this grammar, we should say, is, uh, I believe it is made to be a reference for teaching Cherokee. Yeah. And it has a lot of extra explanation of linguistics terms, which sort of inflates it a bit. There's some of that. There's not a vast amount of that, I don't think. Uh, I don't know. And, and it is, and it is generally very comprehensive too, so. Yeah. Um, could be heavier on syntax, maybe. <laughs> um, a, mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. So if you love phonological processes, 
mm-hmm. you will enjoy this grammar very much because all sorts of things happen um, when we start talking about some of the uh, the M word morphology. Um, mm-hmm. You have vowels running into each other and colliding and coalescing, and you have uh, laryngealization. You have various things that happen across um, boundaries of parts being slammed together. Bam. Yes. Like bam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, not. Well, yeah, we won't. We won't talk about him. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's there's plenty of phonological stuff to look at if you're interested in that and seeing what that looks like in a natural language. Um, there's a subsection on page 76, which I really enjoyed, that talked about characteristics of fast speech. That's always nice to read about. Yeah, no, it's not a huge section, but I appreciate having, you know, things explained. Like, for example, final vowels tend to go away. Um, the labiovelar qua is sometimes reduced to just w wa, which is pretty interesting to me. Yeah, uh, that could be like a sound change in process, progress or something. Yep, yep. So, um... um as we're moving along, before we go too far away from the tone question, I have a couple questions on that. Um, first off, are there um, words that are, you know, minimal pairs with the tone yes. being the distinguishing? Okay. Yep. Then the question, the next one is, in the native writing system, do they show tones? I no. Really uh, no, they don't. That's <laughs> um, So Cherokee has tone and length. And <laughs> yeah. neither of those neither of those are indicated in the native writing system. Yeah, should we should we go ahead and, and uh, talk about that a little bit? Um, I think it's it's really good, especially for conlangers, because it's almost like he you know conscript made a conscript. But I mean, it's not. Um, yeah, you know. So yeah, well, let's go into it. I think that so be good to we start. should we um, just to, to go over this real quick. So uh, Cherokee is one of the very few. Uh, languages of you know of north america um that actually has its own native script and it was invented by um, a cherokee by the name of sequoia and um when did he develop this i'm wanting to say i think on the wikipedia it says time period 1770 but i don't know if that's uh, 1770 ish i was thinking it's like 17 uh hundreds early 1800s so uh it says around 1809 is when sequoia talked about talking leaves but it's wikipedia that's telling me this yeah um but anyway I won't go through the whole story. There was a, a great episode of Lexicon Valley recently that we'll link to that actually um, went over, uh, goes over the whole story of Sequoia and his writing system. Um, but in general, the the idea is that the 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 long and short of it is that um, he it is sort of like a a constructed writing system because basically Sequoia we should um it was monolingual he spoke only Cherokee he was illiterate but he knew of writing uh from time in uh uh as a soldier and he uh you know saw people saw other soldiers writing on these uh what he termed talking leaves and basically after he became obsessed with this for a, a long time and he tried out different ways of writing and he settled on a syllabary for Cherokee because that ended up sort of working the best for him. And, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of story about, uh, how, how long it took him to get accepted and all that stuff. But, uh, we can do that for another time. But, uh, that's, or 
we can refer you to that, but it is sort of interesting to, to see that, you know, this is a guy who invented a writing system for, from scratch. There were several false starts, mm-hmm. right? He, yeah. he, he apparently tried to create a logographic system and threw that away pretty quickly as being impossible. Um, uh, not everyone in the community was happy with how he's spending his time, and apparently his wife once completely destroyed his work. Yeah, burned uh, the ground. Yes. Yeah, some some people had some, some sort of superstitious beliefs about stuff, or they just thought he was wasting his time. Yeah, I think she you know. thought he was wasting his time. But yeah, it's it's yeah, sort of either or. But anyway, that 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 is an interesting story to to think about. You know, you know, probably the. I I think it's probably a unique situation for the development of a new writing system because most of them have evolved over time. Right. Or Mm -hmm. are based on an existing writing system with twiddly bits to accommodate a new language. Yeah. So anyway, looking at this, um, I do like this, this, uh, the, the fact that he did talk about fast speech because one thing that I don't think a lot of conlangers really take into account is languages are different when they're spoken rapidly uh, than when the when people are pronouncing things carefully. There's the ling- linguists talk about the difference between running speech and careful speech, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I don't know if you can always figure out all those reductions without like trying to actually read your language very quickly or something and and <laughs> figuring out what shakes out but well i mean there are some that are common final vowel deletion before mm-hmm. another vowel i mean there are various rules you can come up with that that don't require too much navel gazing i think mhm too much what navel gazing uh, never heard of that term. Navel gazing, that's, you know, spending all of your time sort of staring at your navel is the idea is you're, you're locked away from the outside world worrying at some sing- single issue. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. Learn a new word every week. Yeah. Um, so on Navel-gazing. page 98 of this grammar, mm-hmm. they give the list of every syllable that is represented by a single uh, Grapheme. Yes, grapheme. Thank you. And there are 24 of them. Most mm-hmm. of those distinctions are relating to tone. Um, and obviously, native speakers apparently have very little problem picking the right vowel length and tone for a word, and that's not surprising. Um, and the other thing has to do oh. with um, the difference between aspirated and unaspirated onset, and you can have coda, glottal stop, or aspiration. Wow, that's that's a lot represented by one grapheme. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Again, writing systems are meant for native speakers, and if if it works fine for them, then I don't think it's that big a deal. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's it's really common, really, for any writing system to leave some things, uh, some distinctions implicit. I think sometimes conlangers do actually go go get too obsessed with making sure all the phonemes are distinct in their writing system. Yeah. Mm, Um, Yeah. Yeah, uh, and looking at the syllabary, um, it looks really weird. <laughs> I kind I like the way it looks. I kind of like the yeah. look of it. Cause, I mean, Sequoia was an artist, and the, the way he drew his characters, uh, um, these, these individual sy- symbols, some of them look like English letters, although they mm-hmm. are not the, uh, anything like 
uh, uh, the, they're not pronounced anything like the, the English counterparts, usually. And, um, but others are like weird curlicue things and stuff. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what handwritten Cherokee looks like, because there's a, a huge, the normal typefaces have a huge distinction between thick and thin. Yeah, they're really, it's really kind of bizarre. You want to know, yeah, it's, it's, and I think that might be a, a um, how should we say, a consequence of the first typeset for it. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, moving on. Oh, yeah, well, I just, we were talking about letters, I just linked the, a diagram that shows a lot of different English and Greek and Russian letters because I noticed that it said a lot of the letters that Sequoia used are look Greek or look English. Um, I wasn't sure if he, you know, drew them directly from the book or if he drew them from his own experience, but they don't correspond to those sounds necessarily at all. No, yeah. Mm. It's just like just on the surface it looks the same, but like what looks like an English letter E I think is uh, – not related to that at all. It's like a oh no, I'm sorry. English looks like letter R is actually eh, I guess. So it's really um, interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 just in general like and like a P is uh, yeah. So I don't even. I mean, I, I would almost say that it looks like it was influenced by English, but only in the aesthetics of it. I mean, or in the shapes of it. Not even sure. not even. I aesthetics. mean, the, the thought was that he had seen written material in English. Mm-hmm. So he's had access to the Latin alphabet, but one assumes that he casually saw things like newspapers, yeah. signs, mm-hmm. right? He had all of these symbols around. So that's part of the surprise, I think, um, literate English speakers see when looking at the syllabary is there are all of these shapes that are quite familiar, yeah. it's like, but they're not it's, being used in the way that we would expect. Yeah, yeah. He saw English letters, but he never learned to read English, so... So he, he just knew the symbols almost. He just, yeah. he just, he took, threw in some English letters in there that have no relationship in, in how they usually sound in English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe. Very, very cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, Are we ready to move on from the writing? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, another nice thing that is described in section five is the syllable structure, which again, I always appreciate to see in a conlang, both because I like to know it's possible because it often explains weirdness in grammar. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I find personally making sure, you know, I might produce some words to start with, and mm-hmm. then I use that as the basis for describing syllable shape clearly mm-hmm, um, yeah. to make sure that I don't accidentally produce things that are inconsistent and then cause me morphology pains or other sort of pains down the, lo- the road. Mm. So I like that... Uh, they were able to produce a nice um, explanation. Random of- weirdness here. You can get two aspirates in a row. Yep. So hick hick tia hick tia. Yeah, that's doable. Uh, what's another language that does that? Um, Armenian. I forget if it's west or east. One of them will let you do that as well. Hmm. Uh, I suspect it happens in India regularly. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. I was just going to say, how similar is this to some of the other languages of the area? You said it's an Iroquoian language? Yep. Yeah. It's a little, uh, from what I know of them, it's a little bit more remote from those, um, but not widely. It has a number of things, and we'll get to, I've got some notes further on about 
doing these things that we expect of languages of North America. Now, um, <laughs> one more quick question on the this reference ground I'm looking at. This is Oklahoma Cherokee. I noticed yeah. on one of the maps or one of the videos I was watching, it was North Carolina was a region. Are they That's two different dialects? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the Cherokee are all from that the North Carolina region, and then we're forced to um, through a brutal march. Um, and uh, the Trail of Tears. Yeah, the Trail of Tears. Most of them were forced to go to uh, the Oklahoma Territory. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So. So right, but so but right, it's they're separated. I mean, I think there are still a few Cherokee in. There's there's uh, a few that managed to stay, I think. Um, but you know, that's the the two tribes are just like now so have been separated for long long enough that they. Are kind of like two different, uh, two different tribes. So yeah. Well, you expect the sort of language drift to start when you're separated that much. Mm-hmm. Um, like other Iroquois languages, it has a pretty free word order in the sense the constituent order can be all over the place. The word order within a noun phrase is much stricter, and that's again expected of these sorts of non-configurational languages. Um. Uh, what was I going to say? On page 143 starts a nice long discussion of various kinds of clitics, which do all sorts oh. of fun things. So, right, this grammar is huge. I'm just picking up some highlights of things that I thought were especially interesting. Oh, no, that's that's very helpful. So um, I was looking at um, phonological processes. There's an interesting bit of there's an alternation between H and glottal stop. Yes. But it's. It's like certain uh, prefixes take take uh, a glottal stop grade of the of the root, so that so which basically certain certain prefixes cause h to turn into the glottal stop. This is the basic thing. So yeah, in a and yeah. and and you can get um, metathesis where aspiration appears on constants that used to be unaspirated. So mm-hmm. oh, I remember seeing that. Or are you pointing it out to me when we, I was looking at this grammar before, yeah. a long time ago? <laughs> We've had this giant grammar sitting around for a while on our show notes thing. Listen, mm-hmm. um, it, it has different um, question clinics for whether you're asking a yes-no question or you're asking an either-or question, which is sort of interesting. Mm, oh, Okay. Um, and that's distinct. The, the either or one still has the word or, <laughs> um, but you still use a different question marker, which I thought was interesting. Okay. Um, there's an information question clinic, which I don't fully understand how it's different from a yes, no question. On the word that is being questioned, a yes or no is expected response. It's for a skull. Right. So let's see. I mean, we don't. I mean, if you're interested, read the document. We don't need to resolve this, George. Yeah, um, I, I see. Uh, I, I'm I'm just t- uh, taking a look to see what um, where where it occurs. Okay. Well, I may look at that closer on my own because that's <laughs> um, interesting. As is often in these free word order languages, the clitics seem to be landing on the first word in the clause. 
Uh-huh. And that's that's the, the the joke word that everyone giggles when I say, especially the Germans, Fockernagel position. <laughs> um, it's just that Turkey has a slew of um, question particles, question clitics. Yeah. Which page are you on? Uh, 147-ish. Mm. Yeah. I think... So this is... Uh, I guess in Cherokee, it's just always Vakernagel position. Some Someday, someday we're going to feature Tagalog, and I'm going to sputter uh, along trying to figure out where their uh, various particles go, because it seems to change every sense. Oh, good. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> Uh, we have a few particles that the author calls emphatic, which sends me through the roof. <laughs> um, the there's an echo question uh, clinic in Cherokee too. That's that, I like that. Uh, may use that. So basically, you know, askayaki. Uh, Askaya means man, man, or no, skaya means man, and then the the eye in front is like a third person animate thing. And uh, Askayaki is like a man, uh, whereas like someone's someone's saying that they they saw a man, and you you say a man. So that's interesting. Um, we have particles that mean things sort of like but and or. Um, we have a few here where um, the analysis is uncertain, right? Where the the author has only a few examples of, and he's not quite sure. Necessarily, yeah. what's what's going on? A part, it's a important. That's an important thing to look look for when um, when we're as we uh, sort of mentioned on our last episode. Sometimes when you're reading about a real language, people don't know everything about it, and there's there's things that can't be properly analyzed. Their informant got sick of answering questions about it. <laughs> That 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 is true. That 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 can be one one of them. The things. So. Um, there's a concessive one on page 158. Um, the note is pretty amusing. The clitic is typically translated "but," but when attached to a question word, it often expresses the idea "I wonder." And the first example is "I wonder where he buys his pants." Yeah, there was something earlier about taking off and putting pants on, or I don't know. Pants. Hmm. Um. So. <laughs> Right, you have the question word first with this concessive particle. What's the like, Cherokee word for pants? Uh, something like asulo, but it mm-hmm. takes various kinds of markers. And once it becomes plural, then there's other um, complexities we've not talked about yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> so in this, when it's showing this, um, the first line is obviously the native script. The next line is the romanization. The third one is the morpheme breakdown. And the yes. la- fourth is the... Uh, direct translation. Where is the? I guess the ti plus uu goes to the juu. Um, yes. Between wow, there is a lot of uh, things getting gobbled up by others. Eyes in there. Yes, there are. Mm. <laughs> wow. I wonder why right. more people don't try to learn this. Well, I mean, it looks very interesting. I love you know, but I'd like to learn more about it. Let's hunter forward. Um. <laughs> so uh, here's one of those things that is. Uh, pretty common in languages of North America is they have a bunch of verbs that have classifiers built into them. Okay. Um, Cherokee, fortunately, only has five classifiers. You have one for a solid lump, and that's the default if you're not sure where something goes. It ends up in that class. Um, You have one for liquids. 
you have one for uh, rigid objects, mm-hmm. um, typically long and straight like pencils and stuff. Um, you have one for flexible, which yeah. is anything that bends. And then you have one for animates for people and dogs and so forth. That's yeah, that's uh, interesting. So very simple. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's comparatively simple until there are twenty ish verbs that do this, and almost all of them are verbs of handling. In fact, they might all be verbs of handling, like carry, give, hand, yeah. put that sort of stuff. Um, but they've been in use for so long that the formation is not always transparent. <laughs> yeah, well, we um, have the the. The list we have, the, the ones we have, what we have here, uh, uses to hand someone something and mm-hmm. to have something as examples. So. Right. Um, one thing that I like is that it makes, um, you know, you've got picking something up and you've got putting something down. Uh-huh. Um, but there's, there's three verbs for unhanding something. One of them is to just put it down. One is to put it down in water, and another is to put it down in fire. Very cool. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Put <laughs> That's really nasty. Down in water and put something down in fire. Right. And this happens in various ways in languages. Again, the Pacific Northwest often has forms that indicate specifically some action that involves dunking something into fire or sometimes dunking something into water. So we have dahistuska, dahistuska. You're braver than I am to even try to pronounce these things. Yeah. <laughs> it means he's putting something rigid in the fire. Yes. So you could you could imagine like somebody putting like a log on the fire. Or a hot dog on a stick. <laughs> well, it depends how yeah. frozen the hot dog is. Well, no, I mean on a stick, right? If you're roasting. Yes. Anyway. Or um, you're talking about putting like cooked spaghetti or dry spaghetti into water. Uh, I wonder. It might make that distinction. Yeah. Certainly, yeah. Navajo would care very much about that distinction. Yeah, so five degrees of classification is much simpler than, say, Apache or Navajo. Yeah, and actually, looking at these classifiers, this may uh, may uh, give me the idea to repurpose an idea I had for one of my languages, but I won't get into that anyway. So, is that more of, um, like, I guess a compliment of the, like, is that talking about the direct object? Yes. Or does that yes, change? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes, it's the direct oh. object. So if there's, um, in most languages Mm -hmm. that are sensitive to classifiers, Mm -hmm. they operate on an ergative absolutive alignment. That is, Mm -hmm. if the verb is intransitive, the classifier refers to the subject. If it is transitive, it refers to the object. That happens all over the world. And I'm guessing that's the most common pattern for classifiers on verbs. And I guess it's, uh, is like, is this the full sentence when you just have the one word that says he's putting something flexible in the water? Yeah. Or is it like pro drop? And I guess that'll say that's like yeah. a pronoun, a dumb, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. very, very cool. So, yeah, we have phenomenal prefixes that get stuck on. And, uh, so Cherokee does have polypersonal agreement. Yep. Correct? Yes, it does. Um, subject and object on transitives. Um, it has singular, dual, and plural number. It has clusivity in the first person, dual, and plural. And it's all prefixing. Mm-hmm. There are two sets. There's set A and set B. They are used on both nouns and verbs, and you just have to memorize when which is used where. <laughs> sometimes it's I... determined lexically. Sometimes it's determined by um, other sort of grammatical goings-on. Can I just say, I really like the idea of first-person inclusive dual. Just the idea of you have a special word that just means you and I. Yeah. Of course, that... that 
as it does in Cherokee, this this is likely to fit into a larger system. They ha- also have dual first person exclusive dual and uh, second person dual. They don't. The third person doesn't have a dual form. So that's a uh, that's or at least this thing doesn't. Right. Set A doesn't, and I believe that the plural is used for that. Mm-hmm. I've seen a different chart where the the boxes were glommed together. Um, it's like I said, um, these same prefixes are also used to mark possession. Mm-hmm. Um, they mark core arguments like subject and object, but the exact relationship might be vague. So you've got some synthetic forms going on where it's like first person plural and second person singular. You don't necessarily, without more information, know which one's the subject and which one's the object. The forms are just glued together. And you have to figure out from context. So that a single form might mean, depending on context, she and I waited for you, she and I waited for you too, mm-hmm. and I waited for the two of you. Oh, and okay. an example of that is on page 199. Let's take a look at that. Um, right. And so I've not sat down and stared at the analysis of this. There might be some sort of animacy hierarchy thing going on there that, that motivates that. Mm-hmm. Um. As I said before, there's all sorts of phonotactic fun. Verbs, run, uh, vowels run into vowels. There's metathesis. Um, other kinds of sound changes are triggered by other things, um, which he discusses in great detail. I do like that he showed the, you know, what it looked like before all those um, affixes gobbled up, he gobbled each other up. Yeah, <laughs> um, it makes it a lot easier. I've seen ones where it do, they don't do that, and you have to, to basically just go poking in the dark trying to find out what ends where and what affected what. But this is very nice. I'd love to do to use this to, you know, inform future ways of writing out your, uh, I guess, romanization or your dr- transcription or whatever. Yeah, your, your interlinears. If you have yeah. phonological processes that wreak havoc, please tell us what the form was beforehand. Oh, yes, please. Thank yeah. you. Stikatia. St- st- um, uh, <laughs> I'm, I just I just felt like trying to pronounce absolutely. It. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, uh, what was I going to say? There is some sort of marking that additionally happens in the verb chain that has to do with things that are local or non-local reference. Um, but I didn't have time to sit down and stare into that more. So my apologies. Um, one thing that happens. In the these blended forms, um, and this happens in other Iroquoian languages, is you don't have a word for son. Son like in the sky or son like son my as in male your offspring. Yes, my male child. Hmm. Oh, okay. Wait, so, so a phrase like my son really means, you know, you are my son. So you'll have the second person, first person prefix slammed onto the word for son or daughter or whatever oh wait oh, oh they have to be possessed like yes uh, they have to be possessed and they not only have to possess they have to say who um so so they define and, two people in the relationship so page so, 434 gives okay. some examples of this okay so in other words all all is this all relationship terms it has a, the, um the, the, the big the big ones the big ones he, he gives a list so, um, let me see. He probably might mention what, I'm gonna, what I was thinking of asking a question about. Um, 434, you said? Yeah. 433 is the... 433. Uh, 
I was going to say, if they don't know who it is, like if it's, you know, like whose son is this? Well, I guess would they have a... There's an indefinite indefinite marker. Okay. I think I, for some reason, I think I remember you talking about this before. Maybe other languages do this too. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, we mentioned it before. Terms require, um, so father, mother, offspring, uh, oh, they, they separate out, um, maternal and paternal grandparents. And brother. Okay, so, um, yeah, number 62 is this list of all these, including, uh, boyfriend slash girlfriend. Yep. Interestingly. And it's, they have one word for either. I guess you could you could say lover or something. <laughs> that uh, that sounds so. It sounds like a French movie. That word. <laughs> <laughs> lover, my lover. It just doesn't work well in English or modern English, at least. Would, anyway, would, would you prefer paramour? <laughs> sounds a little precious, but I don't have a pref- I don't have a solution to the problem. Um, <laughs> no, there there are special vocative forms which are neat. Did you um? Let's see, I was looking at the, it mentions um. The term for siblings have uh, reciprocal forms. Does that mean if they're both like male and they're brothers of each other versus some that wouldn't be reciprocal? I, I can't really think about uh, siblings that wouldn't be siblings of each other necessarily. So the, yeah, the, so the reciprocal term. So there's a brother that says reciprocal term only, but it's one of these things that requires a possessive mm-hmm. marking. I don't know. That's that's it's interesting. That would be something to think about, and maybe something to research separately. Because, because yeah, people I'm write sure. entire dissertations on the family relationship words in these languages. Yeah, hmm. well, it's, it's a big deal. It relationship is. terms are are a big deal. Um, uh, among the whole conjugation pile, there's also a set of forms that are called object focus markers. Some people call mm-hmm. it a passive. Really, it's just an indefinite subject with whatever the appropriate object is. That's on page 203. Hmm. Um, I mean, that, if you're interested in that, you can go look. Um, as is common in North American native languages, it's a very verb-heavy language with verb roots providing the basis for lots of adjectives and noun stems. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to being, you know, just sort of central to your average utterance. Um, there are five different stem forms, which are discussed on page 224. There's a present continuous there's something they call the incompletive, which just looks like an imperfective end every time except the present. There's an immediate form, which means just now. There's a completive, which sure looks like a perfective. And there's a deverbal noun form, which is used for things that sort of stands in for things like infinitives and participles. Yeah, 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 stuff like that. Um, and of course, some verbs do not have all stems. Um, <laughs> and in addition to that, there are different suffixes that also mark tense and aspect. So you get this mix and match um, I get the impression that some of these suffixes only occur with certain stems, so not it's not like every possible bop combination is available in actual used language, but it's a huge list and many pages are devoted, so I invite you to dig into that if you're interested in it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there are another set of prefixes that come out before the pronoun marking, um, and these can, you can get quite a pile up of these. Several of them are usable at the same time. Uh, some are nearly lexical that they pretty much always going to be used. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I get the impression that, for example, the verb sing always has the distributive prefix. Huh. The idea that each word is something that you're distributing as part of the song, I think, is the metaphor at work there. Um, 
Uh, it has an irrealis prefix, which is always used when the verb is negated. So I thought that's that was cool. cool. Yeah. Um, it has something that's called a relativizer, which can be used for things that we recognize as relative, sort of relative clauses. But I thought this was interesting. It's all, it's um, often used with time expressions, oh, which sounds okay. to me like some sort of clefting structure, like it was yesterday that I blah, blah, blah. Mm. Oh, okay. Um, and on page 538 and thereabouts are a whole bunch of valency changing suffixes, which David J. Peterson will enjoy. Um, and those of us who care about these and everyone else can go look. And it, it does the usual sorts of things, causatives and applicatives and middles and all of that stuff. Yes. Well, I mean, we don't need to go through the list. It's all stuff we've talked about. We've seen them all. There's nothing surprising or wild in, in that list. Is no, that no, no. I just, I just, I, I just thought it was funny that you, you mentioned David there. I don't think he actually listens to the podcast though. Oh well, he, he, he mentioned a fondness for valency changing operations in his Kamikami grammar, as I recall. So I remember that. Yeah. Hmm. So that's stuff. So there's, there's just a bunch of stuff on in this grammar that. Oh yeah. You can oh yeah. Look at. Um, I had meant to read this grammar and did not <laughs> a long time ago because I got. So far through it, and then was like, "This is really long." <laughs> but I may, but I may, um, because of certain things being pointed out to me, I may start trying to draw a few ideas out of Cherokee and make notes about them uh, in order to get uh, to to figure out. Um, I do like this idea of the class cl- the uh, classifier system. Um, sure. And it's more restrained than in some languages. It's not used everywhere, and it's not as um, yeah uh, morphologic. It's not quite as morphologically opaque as something like the Navajo system. Yeah, mm. and I'm um, like my idea. I I have a very specific idea of something like this system that I'm going to think of. It that kind of is a hybrid of something I had come up with before and rejected, and now I'm going to. Rejigger it to be like this. Uh, mm. Anyway, um, there's an, I, I didn't want to say a whole lot about the noun system just because, in general, nouns do not excite me. Um, nouns have a variety of pluralization patterns. Mm-hmm. Sometimes suffixes, sometimes prefixes, sometimes both, as I understand it. Um, mm-hmm. Page 425 has some of the discussion of that. One thing that struck me as interesting is there's not a huge number of root nouns in the language. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting to me is that non-human root nouns are not directly possessed. That is, they do not take um, a set A or a set B prefix. Um, instead, you give the noun, and then the possessive prefix is smacked onto a stem that is used just for this purpose. Um, and that is explained on page 419. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like... Uh, uh, my dog or your dog, you say dog and then my thingy. And then there's a dummy um, or, or whatever. Something. Yeah, something, yeah. Well, I don't know what you call this thing, but that's what it is. Um, so I thought that was kind of nifty. Um, mm-hmm. And then the last thing I was going to say is that it has both attributive and predicate adjectives, although there's fun agreement stuff going on with attributive adjectives that looks very verb-like. And if you are at a loss on how to do that, you might want to look at the adjective chapter in this grammar. Mm. Yes. Wow. It's a pretty enormous document, this grammar that we found, and it's just amazing to me that it's just available out there for anyone to read who wants to read it. Yes, it's it's massive, and like you would expect this thing to be sold as a book. 
At great cost. Yeah. For <laughs> at least $150. Yes. Because yeah. it's, it's massive textbook length. It's a total. Remember, if it's published by Brill, it will have a brilliant price. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so... I really don't have much to add because we've been talking for a long time oh, already. Wow. It's yes. a very, uh, it's very significant and there was lots to talk about. And, uh, but, uh, I, I think that if people want to learn more, they can look at this gigantic massive grammar and, uh, take a look at what they, uh, want to look at or, and, uh, figure, figure out specific things that they want to uh look at cuz i think i think um the the strength of having a giant grammar of something of a language like this is actually that i can look at the table contents and i can see ooh let me uh look at valent- valency changing affixes and then i can go there and look at the treatment just on that feature mm-hmm. in the language so that um uh, it's sort of it can be sort of a, a reference for cool ideas. Yes. So uh, let's move on to our feedback for today, shall we? Sure. sure. Let's shall. Um, so we have. <laughs> Someone's been watching the BBC. <laughs> I'm going to remove his email address from this. But, yes. Um, just so I don't accidentally copy and paste it into the show notes. But uh, we got an email from Timothy, and he says, I just fi- finished listening to your podcast on Kanga Theagam, uh, which I still can't pronounce pro- properly. Uh, and it mm-hmm. struck me that you all said that this was a conlang for a magical language. And I know from Arika Okrant's book that Ladan is for expressing the views of women better. So I would like to recommend an episode where you all just have some fun going over different conlangs that have a stated purpose or philosophy. Nothing all that in-depth, but a broad set touching on what appears to be how how that purpose is being addressed, detailed vocabulary, or certain features of the language. So uh, this is an interesting thing. I don't think this is really one topic. Could- the one topic would probably be like an overview, but you couldn't necessarily go too deep because I don't. I mean, there are so many conlangers, and there are so there are different you know reasons that people do it and this, purposes and all that. Yeah, this but, is something. Uh, yeah. the, this is something I think we could do maybe sometime in the future as a series sort of thing. We could do magical languages. We could do political languages. We could do political languages. Has anyone done that except me? You've done that. Oh. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, I would, I would call Ladan a political language because it was oh, okay. associated with feminism. Um, That's a funny illusion you're making. Okay. Well, I don't know, um, but uh, we could, we could think, think of that. You could also think of the original uh, purpose for Esperanto was political, mm. uh, uh, social. Yeah, maybe. Well, political. Whatever. No yes. Way. Yeah, mm. but uh, I mean. We could we could do different sort of goals you have for conlang. We'd have to think about that for a while. So, but it's a good idea. I mean, it's right away. But we'll think about the suggestion. That might be fun though to skip through a bunch of conlangs without having to go into enormous detail in all of them. So, for some reason, to make a survey of interesting languages you wouldn't otherwise have a chance to talk about much, or which we've already talked about and don't need to talk about again. 
Mm -hmm. might be right, right, right. Um, Almost think... like a conlang review. Yeah. It could be useful. Review, yes. And they can all dance the can-can. Exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we we can think about different ways to to do this if we if we decide to do it. But it, um, uh, that's a I do like this suggestion. Um, so emails go to conlanger at gmail dot com. Uh, and uh, I still need more of the the top of the show greetings. Um, what one thing I want to uh a couple things I want to mention about those. So. I really, really strongly prefer that you send your recording as an MP3 because it's very easy for me to take an MP3 and put it into Audacity. Uh, and the other thing is when you send the email uh, with your translated greeting, please put the word greeting in the subject because that automatically filters it into a special tag in my Gmail. Mm. Makes it easier to organize. Yep. Anyway, so with that, I'm going to go to William. What are your final words of wisdom? Think about meaning as being discontinuous, morphologically discontinuous. I just talked about in this language, we have some words where you have some kind of prefix, then the conjugation marking, and then what we would normally think of as the verb, but the bits at the far ends determine the meaning. So think about that for your vocabulary. Hmm. Hmm. Kind of cryptic. Yes. Wow. Anyway. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. It's supposed to sound good. It's not supposed to mean anything. <laughs> uh, and uh, so Mike... Um, no, I guess I'll leave, I'll let people stew on that, that bit of wisdom, <laughs> that, get, that wisdom is given. Good wisdom, William. <laughs> for you. Oh, okay, William. then I'm going to say, happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a Conlang or Natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our Contribute page for details. Web space for Conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device. <laughs>